Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. This episode is about bioluminescence, sea exploration, coastal waters, and flash dancers marking pollution. And talking with me today is Dr. Edie Witter, who's president and senior scientist of the Ocean Research and Conservation Association on Florida's Indian River Lagoon. Hello, Dr. Witter. Hi, Rob. Uh, you're calling us from uh, sunny California? Yes, I'm out in Santa Barbara. A long way from Indian River Lagoon. Let me tell people a bit about your background and why you're you know, what's the Santa Barbara connection here? So Dr. Witter received her B.S. degree in biology from Tufts University. She then went on to earn a master's degree in biochemistry and a Ph.D. in neurobiology awarded by the University of California in Santa Barbara. Two years after completing her Ph.D., Dr. Witter became certified as a scientist research pilot for atmospheric diving systems. Okay, why is it atmospheric? Why isn't it oceanographic? Atmospheric meaning that I'm at, at surface pressure when I'm down in those subs, so I don't have to decompress, a very important point when you're diving 3,000 feet into the ocean. Good grief. So you don't have to worry about the bends and all that. Exactly. Uh, Dr. Witter holds certificates, certifications that qualify her to dive the deep diving suit WASP as well as the single-person, untethered submersibles, Deep Rover and Deep Worker. Dr. Witter has made over 250 dives in the Johnson Sea Link submersibles. Her ocean research and dives have been featured in the BBC, PBS, Discovery Channel, and National Geographic television productions. In 2005, Dr. Witter resigned from her 16-year post at the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute in Florida, to co-found the Ocean Research and Conservation Association, ORCA, and that's a nonprofit organization dedicated to the protection and restoration of marine ecosystems and the species they sustain through development of innovative technologies and science-based conservation action, while translating complex scientific issues into technological solutions Dr. Witter is fostering greater understanding of ocean life as a means to better, more informed stewardship. In 2006, based on her work with ORCA, Edie has, was awarded the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. And much to my pleasure, Dr. Witter has, been, has put the award funds to work on monitoring the health of Florida's Indian River Lagoon. So quite the luminary, Dr. Witter. Uh, thank you. It's, uh, I've been very fortunate in my career path. Um, tell us about what is bioluminescence? Bioluminescence is living light, and the kind that most people are familiar with is fireflies, and there are a few other land animals like make, that make light. There's some earthworms and centipedes, but in general it's pretty rare on land. 
In the ocean, it's actually the rule rather than the exception, especially out in the open ocean environment away from shore. If you drag a net through the water offshore from 1,000 meters to the surface, most of the animals you bring up in that net make light. In fact, about 80 to 90% of them in many cases, and it's fish, shrimp, jellyfish. Uh, it's a pretty amazing array of animals out there in, in terms of variety of organisms and variety of methods of making light and using it. So the trick is you have to disturb them. You can't just look over off a bridge and see a lot of lights and stuff. Well, that, yeah, that's an interesting uh, point because when I first started, there was a lot of question about that. Uh, the way that we knew about light in the deep ocean is uh, lowering detectors over the side of ships. In fact, it was initially found in the 1950s uh, when people were trying to measure the penetration of sunlight and when the um, meter got down deep enough, it started seeing these flashes of light. And actually, I think initially they thought something was wrong with the light detector, and then they realized, no, no, this is, I mean, it wasn't like they didn't know bioluminescence existed. They just didn't realize how much there was of it in the deep ocean. And they were published a few papers about, you know, how many flashes per minute they were seeing until somebody finally noticed that there was a connection between the number of flashes and the sea state. So if the ship was bouncing up and down a lot more, they were seeing a lot more flashes. And they realized, oh, no, we're stimulating the luminescence. And so that's when they hmm. started developing these um, light detectors called bathypotometers that intentionally stimulated the luminescence. But the question still remained, how much luminescence was there when we weren't down there disturbing it? And uh, it's a tough question to answer because you can't decouple very easily. You know, a detector over the side of the ship is always moving, or if you moor it to the bottom, there's always currents flowing around it that are stimulating and so uh, it wasn't until I used the little single-person submersible deep rover that's an untethered platform, and I could take it down and go neutral in the water and just go dead in the water and discovered that when I did that, I would see no flashes at all. But I couldn't just report that because, you could, you know, if I said, well, there was no luminescence if I wasn't moving, then you have to say, well, but how much potential luminescence was there? And so I came up with this um, technique where we mounted a, a, a hoop that was a, a meter across, about three feet across, and we stretched a net across it. And then when I moved through the water, animals bumping into the screen would be stimulated to flash. And since I knew the area and I knew the forward speed, I could say how many hundreds of sources there were per, per, per cubic meter. So you knew that you had this huge basic signal-to-noise ratio, basically the deep ocean is a bioluminescent minefield mm. where there's all this stuff, this light waiting to explode. But, um, and so it, it's got to impact how the animals maneuver through that light field because they don't want to be revealing themselves. Yes, well, now we have these wonderful, you know, videos that have been brought back from the deep. You can go to the Smithsonian and see a wonderful video of going down below the light zone and, of course, Monterey has come out with a lot of um, fabulous stuff, and um, it's remarkable that um, you are speaking so, spoken so highly of by the, the head biologist down there in Monterey. Uh, so wh when do animals uh, give off light when they're not being disturbed? Oh, they clearly do do that. I mean, certainly they're using bioluminescence for 
um, attracting mates. And so, uh, you know, when, when the, the time is right, um, they are using their luminescence to um, bring in a mate. Um, there's a, a large number of animals that use bioluminescence for camouflage. So out in the open ocean environment where there's no hiding places, no trees or bushes to hide behind, animals go down into the darker depths to try to hide, but, you know, unless you go way, way deep, there's always a little bit of uh, light coming down from above, and so ant predators will swim around looking up, looking for a silhouette to indicate that there's food up there. And so a lot of animals camouflage their silhouettes with bioluminescence from their bellies. Hmm. And it's an amazing cloaking device. It, they just absolutely disappear. People are sometimes surprised because you see uh, pictures of these animals that got what look like little dots on their bellies called photophores, um, and they look like discrete light sources and doesn't seem like it would be that great camouflage. But if you've ever opened your eyes underwater, you know how much things blur, and that light field actually blurs together perfectly. And it's a perfect match to the color and the intensity of the downwelling sunlight. So if a cloud goes over the sun and dims the sunlight, the animal can dim its bioluminescence, so it just completely disappears. That's remarkable. How deep is the animal when it's responding to the clouds? Uh, it depends on the animal. Um, can be down as you know between 2,000 and 3,000 feet deep during the day. Um, or up very near the surface at night, uh, they counter-illuminate, as this um, uh, technique is called, um, against moonlight as well. So these are mesopelagic inhabitants. Correct. They, they live in the, what's known as the twilight zone, and to adapt to that world of twilight, um, they, many, many of them, the shrimp, uh, most of what are called krill, uh, virtually all of krill, um, uh, there's fish, tremendous numbers of fish that can do this. In fact, the most common vertebrate on the planet is a little fish called the bent tooth bristlemouth, uh, and it is bioluminescent from little photophores on its belly that it uses to, to, to um, obliterate its silhouette. Uh, there's squid that can do this, and, and they're incredibly clever about it because they can actually change the color of the light coming from their um, bellies, depending on whether they're trying to mask their silhouette against sunlight during the day where it's um, a, just a deep, rich blue, or against moonlight at night where it's a slightly greener color. So why are these fish so ugly besides having beautiful lights on them? Well, you know, ugly is a, in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Yes, as a seafood advocate, they don't look like they have much seafood on them. So <laughs> it looks like they're all mouth and not much to eat. I, I think, actually, they're quite magnificent. Um, but uh, they do have uh, a scary appearance, many of them. Um, many of them have very long fangs uh, to be able to snag whatever uh, food that you know, might be um, coming by and available. Um, but... Um, the more you learn about these creatures, I think the more beautiful they become. Oh, absolutely. Or they become the stuff of nightmares, and they're even better because they're so cool. They're so ugly and, and ferocious. Tell us about anglerfish. Anglerfish are wonderful. Uh, they have a luminescent lure that is like that um, neon signs that, that cafeterias put out in order to <laughs> uh, attract customers. 
it, it says uh, all-night diner, come in and feed. Um, and, but when some unsuspecting little shrimp or uh, fish comes along to nibble on that glowing lure, it finds itself engulfed in this living mouse trap of needle-sharp teeth. And the lure in the anglerfish is kind of interesting because um, unlike most uh, animals that, that actually synthesize their light-producing chemicals out of the food they eat, um, the anglerfish doesn't make its own light-producing chemicals. It's got a symbiotic relationship with bioluminescent bacteria. So it provides the bacteria with a perfect um, growth chamber in this um, glowing lure called an esca, uh, and the bacteria provide the anglerfish with light that it can use to attract food, also apparently to attract a mate. We used to think that the different shapes of different lures on anglerfish were meant to attract different types of food, but scientists that have looked at what these fish eat find that they all eat pretty much the same thing. And so now it's believed that the different shape of the lure is how the male recognizes the female of his own particular species. Males in the anglerfish world don't have lures. Um, in fact, they, they don't actually have any uh, visible means of self-support. They have... Um, no big teeth to eat with. They have no lure to attract food to them with. Um, a lot of them have um, large eyes or large nostrils, um, but those that have large eyes, we think that they're using the eyes to find a female of, the, of his own species. The male in, the English, in, in many of these species is what is known as a dwarf male. He's very small compared to the female. And so his only hope for existence on the planet is as a gigolo. He's got to find himself a babe, and then he's got to latch on for life. And so when he finds a female of his own species, he seals the relationship with an eternal kiss. He latches onto her flank, and his flesh confused with her flesh. This isn't true of all species, but in, in some species. Um, her bloodstream grows into his body, and then he becomes nothing more than a little sperm sack. And I'll leave you to interpret uh, that in, in a broader context. <laughs> uh, no, we won't do that. For the whole male gender, we won't go there. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> but um, so that's phenomenal. So the, the male really just lives to uh, procreate and have enough energy to get through the reproduction process. And then it's... And then, can it continue to, to be a, a sperm source for more than one reproduction cycle or something? Yes, that's what, that, that is apparently the case. And, and the females are good to only have one at a time, or do they have multiple fused? No, they can, have, they can have multiple males. They can be polygamous. They can have multiple oh, my males goodness. attached. And I, I, I can't remember what the, the record is either um, six or eight, I think. It might have been eight that a, that, uh, a female was brought up with. Okay, um, so my, most people's are many, up here in New England. Our experience are the tinafores that um, that give off light when they're disturbed, and and you found that that you were able to mimic the light of a certain jellyfish that had interesting uh, caused interesting things to happen. Yes, what, one that. of my one of my favorite deep sea jellyfish is uh, this beautiful red jelly uh, that can be, you know, bigger than a dinner plate, um, and uh, when it's disturbed, it produces this blue light, uh, and one of the, it can actually produce several different displays, but one of the displays it produces is something called a burglar alarm, and 
A burglar alarm is meant to attract attention just the way the alarm on your car, uh, you know, beeping horn and flashing lights is to attract attention to the burglar that's trying to break into your car in the hopes that the police will come and get him or at least he'll be scared away. And so animals that are caught in the clutches of, the, of a predator, uh, their only hope for escape may to be to attract attention of something bigger um, that will attack their attacker and thereby afford them an uh, opportunity for escape. So uh, there's a lot of bioluminescent animals that will just use all of their light organs in the most spectacular kind of displays they can possibly produce in order to attract attention. And I thought, you know, well, that might make for a pretty good optical lure for bringing in large predators um, that we wanted to see. And so we created this uh, electronic jellyfish, as we call it, that's just simply 16 blue lights, blue LEDs, embedded in epoxy, um, and you can tell what a shoestring operation it was because you can still see in the epoxy, epoxy mold we originally used the word Ziploc um, <laughs> embedded in, in the top of the, the um, jellyfish. And uh, the first time we used this was with a camera system um, that I developed that we call the INC, and it was a way to explore the oceans unobtrusively because I've spent so much time in submersibles wondering what is there just out beyond my lights that can see me but I can't see it, and I'm scaring it away with this um, bright, noisy thing that I'm in, bright lights, noisy thrusters. Uh, and so I wanted to leave the camera system on the bottom of the ocean, but one that didn't use white light used red light uh, that was invisible to these animals. And it's a lot trickier than on land where we do this frequently to look at nocturnal animals with infrared light um, because infrared light is absorbed so quickly in seawater it's essentially useless and red light is tough because of that. So we had a hard time finding just the right wavelength that we could use to be able to see the animals and not have them see us. But the first time we did it was uh, in the northern part of the Gulf of Mexico. We set the camera system down next to what was kind of an oasis where we thought a lot of predators might be likely to patrol and we had this electronic jellyfish set up and uh, had about four hours of data watching animals swim around and be undisturbed by our red lights, and I was really happy. And then four hours into the deployment, activated the electronic jellyfish for the first time, and 86 seconds after we turned it on with that pinwheel of light display, we recorded a squid, that a very large squid that is so new to science that it can't be placed in any known scientific family. Wow. So that was an incredibly exciting discovery and a real wonderful proof of concept of this notion that there's probably a lot of animal life down there that we've been scaring away and, and you know, we need new tools for exploration or, in order to be able to find out what's actually living there. Yes. Um, we're talking with Dr. Edie Witter. And uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back after the break to learn more about the mysteries of deep sea exploration and bioluminescence. And then later we'll be talking about um, taking that into the sediments and rescuing Indian River Lagoon. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Deep Sea Explorer, Dr. Edie Witter. Edie, where can people learn more about your work? Uh, they can go to our website at uh, www.teamorca.org, T-E-A-M-O-R-C-A dot O-R-G. Or you can just Google Orca and Witter, W-I-D-D-E-R, and um, also go there. Um, so... What does the Ocean River Ocean Research and Conservation Association do? Do you have a mission statement? Yes, we do. Uh, we're seeking technological solutions to ocean conservation challenges. So a lot of what I did in my deep sea career was work with engineers to uh, develop instruments that I needed to answer questions I had about life in the deep sea, such as the INSC camera system. Um, and when the... Um, uh, Pew Oceans Commission report came out in 2003 and the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy report in 2004. They both said basically the same thing, is that the oceans are in trouble and we need to act now if we're going to turn this around. And I felt like I really wanted to do something about this, and I thought that the approach that I'd taken for deep sea work um, could be applied to the coastal zone environment. And so that was the impetus for the formation of the Ocean Research and Conservation Association. Well, thank you, because, you know, it's, it's very 
intriguing to go into these deep deep sea, you know, mesopelagic zones and stuff. But so much of the problems are in the coastal waters where the people are living on the shore and our actions on the shore are affecting the the uh, the ocean. That was clearly what these reports indicated is that the greatest damage is being done in the coastal zone environment. And uh, looking at, you know, where the greatest impacts were, it seemed to me like uh, non-point source pollution was just an, uh, a staggering problem, and a lot of it was just going on out of sight and out of mind. And so I felt like if we could make pollution visible, if we could make water pollution visible, this might be a way to um, start fighting the problem and you know, making people aware of how damaging this was, not only to the ecosystems, but also to our own health, because a lot of the pollutants that we're talking about are ending up in our, um, in our own bodies and our food chain um, in ways that people can't even imagine. Yes. Um, we've had other programs talking about how the poisons can, and toxins can bioaccumulate up the food chain. And to people who are worried about consuming fish that are more toxic, I remind them that chances are the less expensive the seafood, the better it is for you. And the expensive seafood are the tigers of the sea, like tuna and, um, you know, top predator animals, so that, you know, people can feel safe eating seafood as long as they um, go for the less expensive ones. I found out the hard way in graduate school that, canned mackerel cost a third or a quarter of the price of canned tuna fish. And, of course, canned mackerel being lower down the food chain has much less uh, toxins than does tuna fish. Yeah, I'd also like to discourage uh, the eating of most shrimp because uh, as someone who has seen the bottom of the ocean and what it looks like before a shrimp trawler goes through and after a shrimp trawler goes through, um, it's just... uh, so alarming that we have basically done to the bottom of the ocean what we've been doing to the rainforest, only on an even bigger scale. But once again, it's going on out of sight and out of mind. So the concept that you would wipe out a magnificent forest of soft corals and things like a golden coral, which are thought to live maybe as much as two to 3,000 years, uh, and, and oh, by the way, they happen to be bioluminescent, um, and just for a single haul of shrimp, it's completely unsustainable. There's no um, habitat left for the next generation of shrimp. And so it's damaging to all of us to do this, um, but, but people are unaware of it. Yes, and it's important to, to you know, make that clear that the effects of bottom trawling are just wrecking havoc to everything else, including the animal you're fishing for. Yes, and, and then a lot of the, um, the shrimp farming that goes on in third world countries uh, is wiping out um, mangroves, and uh, that's equally damaging because that's such valuable habitat. It's a nursery for so many of the small shrimp, um, invertebrates, and fish uh, that uh, it, you know, people don't recognize just how critical mangroves are but they go in and they they clear these mangrove areas out to create the shrimp farms, um, and they farm them until the um, eutrophication gets so high that they then move on to the next location. There are some good shrimp farms um, uh, in the U.S., and, you know, if you 
do your research, you can find um, shrimp that is um, okay to eat. But it's it's not so easy. U.S. A farm, lot of U.S. farm U.S. farm shrimp is what you should ask for if you're going to eat shrimp. Correct. And tell us what that means, eutrophication of the shrimp ponds. Oh, well, eutrophication is a problem anywhere where we just get overloading of nutrients. And healthy aquatic ecosystems are generally nutrient-limited. So when we add nutrients in the form of the fish food or just the the fish waste um, at these aquaculture sites, or, of course, even the fertilizer that's running off of our cropland and our um, green lawns, um, what we're doing is we're making the weeds grow, and you get these huge algae blooms, nasty, slimy stuff in many cases, sometimes toxic stuff, Um, and then as the algae dies, the bacteria consume the algae, but they also consume the oxygen and suffocate everything else in the water. So it's just an incredibly unhealthy situation, and so although nutrient sounds like a good word, um, nutrients are what we want to avoid putting into our aquatic ecosystems. Yes, we've talked about this in former programs and episodes of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, how that, you know, for example, nutrients coming down the Mississippi River watershed and out into the Gulf of Mexico has caused an ocean dead zone, uh, I guess the size of New Jersey or some enormous size, uh, where there's just no oxygen because of all the, the, the um, biological activity and then dying and, and all that driven by nutrients coming in. Uh, I hear that the Black Sea is even worse than the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, we, in an earlier program, talked to uh, the Casco Bay, Maine uh, baykeeper, and he observed striped bass chasing bait fish, and they both swam into a dead zone in Casco Bay and all rolled up dead because they just swam into a no-oxygen area where they just couldn't live. So this is a serious problem. Yeah, it's a very serious problem. There's supposedly now hundreds of dead zones around the world. And, of course, the, you know, the fear is that, that the whole ocean will become a dead zone. Uh, and that's, that's uh, unsustainable for life as we know it because we are an ocean planet, and this is, this is the, um, the lungs and the, the, um, the life force of life on Earth. Yeah, they say 50% of the oxygen we breathe comes from the ocean. So every other breath you take is from the ocean. Yes. And, and that will happen even if we slow the algal growth down. We don't have to feed the algae to have more oxygen. That's right. Uh, tell us about um, how, how you came to Indian River Lagoon. I was, um, I was noting in the uh, congratulations on the New York Times article. It's a fabulous article in the science section of the New York Times. It just came out on, what, Tuesday of last week yes, or something? Tuesday of last week, and they did a very nice video with it. They did a, did a really nice job on it. Well, we got some creatures featured in that? Yes. Oh, Definitely cool. So if, you, if people want to see, uh, like, sea fish and things? Oh, including that, that squid that I talked about, the squid discovery. That's in the video that they produced. And... Um, how can we get that? We have to go to the New York Times, I guess. Yeah. Or you can go to our website. If you go to um, teamorca.org, there we uh, go. There's, a, there's a link to the New York Times article there. And there's oh, links cool. to other, other videos as well. Uh, and um, 
And we have a, um, a bioluminescence page um, that also has uh, an exploration dive on it that, uh, so that you can see some of the things that you'd see when you go down in a submersible. And um, another, an, another section called Earth's Own Aliens that um, uh, talks about some of these wonderful strange creatures. The Earth Zone Aliens? Earth's Own Aliens. Oh, Earth's Own. Our own aliens are right. hiding beneath the waves a couple thousand feet down, right? And exactly. Except when, the moon, except when there's no moon, then they come closer to the surface, I guess. So we don't have to worry about swimming into these guys. No. No. Okay. I keep wanting to swim in the ocean. <laughs> By all means. <laughs> So, so I came the, to the Indian River Lagoon um, in uh, 1989, and uh, it was actually from, from Santa Barbara, California, to Fort Pierce, Florida, and I told somebody that recently, and they said, that requires a 12-step program, doesn't it? <laughs> 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 and uh, it certainly did for the caffeine withdrawal, at any rate, where you live in Santa Barbara, there's a coffee shop on every corner, and when we moved to Fort Pierce, there wasn't a coffee shop within 50 miles. Oh, dear. Um, but now I couldn't live anywhere else because we live in a place where we have manatees that come up to our docks, and I see roseate spoonbills flying overhead almost every single day when I go out running with my mm. dog. So um, it's a pretty amazing place to live. And I came well, there originally because of uh, Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institution. They had the Johnson Sealink submersibles, which were the finest uh, midwater submersibles in the world and ideal for my, my research in bioluminescence. Yes, the, the newspaper articles said that Indian River Lagoon is a 156-mile estuary that, quote, scientists say is one of Florida's most precious and threatened ecosystems. And for me, this is like typical science underspeak, because a lagoon is a form of the estu an estuary, and there's no other estuary in North America with greater diversity of animal life inhabiting it than Indian River Lagoon. So it's more than grapefruits, you know, it's a diversity that makes... Indian River Lagoon, a national treasure. And I guess you know that pretty well. Yes, it's, it's an incredibly special place to live. I, I mean, I, I actually used to be able to kayak to work um, and, you know, would see manatees along the way and dolphins uh, pretty routinely. But some of those dolphins are now showing up with a flesh-eating fungal infection, which is just horrible to see. I mean, if you know anything about dolphins, you know how exquisitely sensitive their, their um, skin is, their epidermis. And, and to see these poor creatures covered with this hideous cauliflower-like infection um, is just so alarming. And, you know, um, Carl Safina talked about uh, a, um, a dolphin during the Gulf oil spill that came up along beside a fisherman's boat and, and sprayed oil out of its blowhole all, um, all over them and then kept following the boat, and the fisherman felt like the, the dolphin was asking for help. Mm. And, I, you know, I, I feel like, how are these animals supposed to ask for help? I mean, it, I, ha I do have students show up all the time ask, you know, saying that they, they want to become a marine biologist because they want to, um, swim with the dolphins, and I, I, I tell them, look, if you want to help a dolphin, the, the most wonderful thing you could do for a dolphin is to clean up their water. Yes, I, first, 
I first learned of Indian River Lagoon because my son was at the University of Miami, and I have a cousin in Stewart, Florida, so I was staying with him. And Captain Nancy Beaver takes people out on her boats, school groups and scientists, to see Indian River Lagoon. And it is shocking, as you say, to see these fungal infections, skin-eating infections on the sides of the dolphins. And you see it on the Indian River Lagoons, uh, dolphins, and they're not seen so much on the dolphin population that lives outside of Indian River Lagoon. I mean, the, the lagoon is big enough, so you have a population of dolphins that spend their entire lives and generations in Indian River Lagoon, and they're just suffering. And some of this has to do with the, sh- the oceanography of the lagoon, that it's a shallow, you know, it's very shallow, it's enclosed, um, so that it gets very hot, the water warms up more than a deep water place would, and uh, I suppose it's got things more concentrated, wouldn't you say? Um, that's part of it. Uh, it also has to do with um, what was done to um, the center of Florida uh, in order to um, drain what they considered to be useless swampland. And so uh, uh, Lake Okeechobee feeds a canal directly into the lower part of the Indian River Lagoon. And uh, what has happened is that by putting in these canal systems, um, we've eliminated a lot of the biological filtering. And so... We've got mercury settling on our land everywhere due to um, uh, fossil fuel burning, Uh, but it comes out in great floods, I believe, um, into the southern part of the Indian River Lagoon out of uh, what's known as the C-44 Canal. gets turned into methyl mercury and then ends up in the the food chain of these dolphins that, that spend most of their lives, as you said, in the southern part of the Indian River Lagoon. And uh, that consumption of mercury um, is believed to be depressing their immune systems. So a lot of these dolphins are manifesting what is almost like AIDS because their immune systems are so depressed they're just super susceptible to things like this lobomycosis, which is something, you know, you see in third world countries and actually humans can get. Um, yes. But, uh, you know, they've got, they've got tumors, they've just got skin lesions, they've got all kinds of things. Um, that, that their immune systems can no longer fight off. So it's not just the nutrients that are being released out of Oki, whatever it's called, the lake Oki, in there. Oki, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not just the nutrients, it's the accumulated mercury that's fallen from um, the skies pretty much and is Correct. on the surface. It gets washed into and then it concentrates as it flows into waterways meeting waterways until it gets to the right. lagoon. And so we need need to have a greater appreciation of the importance of biological filtering. Um, Also, interestingly, the nutrients do play a part in this because the mercury is turned from uh, mercury into methylmercury by sulfate-fixing bacteria. Uh. And so if we would stop feeding the bacteria with um, uh, fertilizer, things like ammonium sulfate, uh, then um, there wouldn't be this opportunity to be turned into methylmercury, which is the really dangerous uh, uh, chemical. Right. Much to do. Yes. Um, we're going to take a, a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to learn about the green slime busters of Indian River Lagoon.
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Dr. Edie Witter of Orca, and we're talking about the Indian River Lagoon. And it's an area that I first learned about when I came down when my son was at the University of Miami. And uh, we found these, I was shown by uh, Captain Nancy Beaver, the suffering dolphins. Uh, Sunshine Wildlife, her program, and the Ocean River Institute had a dinner uh, raising awareness and we had Stephen McCulloch, who's the dolphin expert for what what's happening to the you know hurting dolphins in in uh, Florida, and he explained that the most dolphin fatalities and there have been about forty every um, year in conjunction with the summer warm up and rains, uh, and that most of those a lot of those those deaths were in um, Indian River Lagoon, no, we're in Martin County of Indian River Lagoon. And so the next day, uh, Nancy Beaver and I met with um, Martin County Commissioner Patrick Hayes. And Commissioner Hayes was most interested in this uh, point of view that uh, my point was that the lawns are getting 500% more fertilizer, five times they need, and yet the ag business was only doing a little bit more than they needed to. So let's try to do an education bill 
to uh, take a holiday from fertilizing so we could have green lawns and clean water at the same time. And the commissioner was brought to my attention that uh, uh, Mrs. Johnson actually from uh, Jupiter Point had raised to him concerns about how slimy the beaches had become when she's recreating on the beaches with her family. And the commissioner asked me, would this help? And I said, of course, you know, to reduce, as Dr. Witter has been telling us, to reduce nitrogen flow helps reduce algal blooming in uh, bodies of water. Uh, so the commissioner set to it, and um, in July, he, by unanimous vote of the commissioners, uh, put through the toughest ordinance in Florida, which bans the application of fertilizer from June 1st to September 30th. And it um, says when you do fertilize, please, you must use at least 50% slow-release nitrogen and respect the setbacks. You don't want to put the fertilizer too close to the waterways. Uh, and this has been a tr tremendous success with the fertilizer companies knowing what to sell and when to sell it. And it is not a, a regulatory thing where we have people with ticket books because if, you know, if someone goes ahead and fertilizes during the rainy period, they're going to spend a day and some money doing that only to find that their neighbor's lawns are just as green and they haven't wasted the time. So I think that um, it's going to overall be a good process. Um, and to celebrate that, we will have a this year's January event will be on, September, on January 24th. We'll have a dinner and we'll recognize uh, Commissioner Hayes for his work. Uh, and if you'd like more information about that or any of the things we're talking about today, uh, please feel free to visit my website at oceanriver.org. Um, Dr. Witter, you've done some fabulous monitoring of setting up ways to watch what's happening with the nutrients in uh, Indian River Lagoon. Yes, yeah, so uh, we wanted to, as I said earlier, make pollution visible. And we do this with a two-step process. Uh, we go out and we take sediment samples and then we test the sediment um, using a bioluminescent uh, bacterial assay. So anything that, um, uh, any toxin that interferes with the respiration of the bacteria dims the light. Mm -hmm. And so the bacteria sort of work like a canary in the coal mine. You know, coal miners used to bring canaries down before they had expensive sensors to tell them about poisonous gases. And when the canaries stopped singing, or peeled over, they needed to get out of there quick. And so we use the bacteria like one of these broad-spectrum bioassays. It doesn't tell us specifically what toxins are there, but it tells us where the toxins are accumulating in the sediments. And then we've developed a technology that we call Kilroy, because we want him to be like that little Uber GI of World War II fame that was everywhere. And Kilroy um, measures a whole lot of things, but it uh, specifically measures flow, speed, and direction. So it allows us to be able to measure the flow patterns and figure out where the pollution is coming from. And if you uh, go to our website at, at teamorca.org, um, you'll see a little picture of Kilroy, the, the big nose guy um, peeking over the wall. And if you click on that, uh, there's uh, a live streaming data from the Fort Pierce Inlet. Um, so it shows you all of the measurements that Kilroy is making. And we're, we're getting people to join Team Orca um, to help us uh, start working together to clean up the Indian River Lagoon. That's phenomenal. So you're watching the flow and speed. Well, first of all, the, the bacteria don't sing like canaries, and so you've got them to glow instead of sing. 
Right. And then when you see the dimming of the glow, it's like the stopping of the singing. And so you've got all these dim-witted, not witted, but you've got these dimming um, <laughs> bacteria out there. Um, and so that's an indication of trouble in the waters. But I would think that it would just look bad. I mean, how, does, how can you tell that some parts are better or, or what? Oh, it's, it's actually pretty easy to tell that some parts are better. So um, we did a map in uh, Vero Beach between the bridges. Um, and yes. this was funded by Impact 100 um, last year, uh, plus an anonymous donor. And we we kind of created this pollution gradient map. This is this this concept of making pollution visible. And one of the things that jumped out at us was that the lowest nitrogen levels we were finding were right in front of the Vero Beach Country Club. And that's because Vero Beach Country Club has been using best practices. And it works, and they have beautiful green lawns, but they have the lowest nitrogen levels, whereas in the Fingers Canal, um, they have super high nitrogen levels. And so it's, you know, just an, a classic example of, yes, you can have green lawns and you can have clean water. You just have to yes. use best practices. Yes, and education is so important. One of the commissioners of Martin County was saying that he saw lawn owners just going to Costco and buying the biggest bag, you know, because... They wanted to be sure to do the job right, you know, and so we had too much. But it's excellent to hear that, yes, the professionals, the lawn care people, really know their business and if um, they're doing it right. The other thing we discovered was that every time our interns went up there to take sediment samples, they said that the water was just covered with grass clippings. And so uh, grass clippings are ending up in the water, either being blown directly out off of lawns um, around the water's edge, or more often it's actually coming from inland sources where people are blowing the clippings into the rain gutters that then feed directly into the Indian River Lagoon. But those clippings are loaded with the nutrients and pesticides, and then, you know, they're, they're broken down by the bacteria, um, and so if we could just stop the grass clippings from going in, that would, that would make a huge difference as well. And if actually people would just either bag the clippings or leave them on their lawns to um, what they call grass cycle, um, that, that would be better for their lawn and better for the Indian River Lagoon. So don't put a bag on the back of your lawnmower. Just cut the grass and let it lie, you know, let the clippings lie as you go along. And uh, that will mean less washes in. A common misperception that I get all the time in, in that area of Florida, and also now that I'm working on Cape Cod, is that everyone thinks I'm only concerned about the lawns that are on the wealthy waterfront properties. And as you said, everyone's lawn eventually is, goes to a water, you know, to a waterway of some sort. And when this, and in Florida's got the really heavy rains in the summertime, so that stuff gets quickly washed into waterways. You don't have to be the rich and famous in those houses to uh, be having a negative impact on the lagoon. Exactly right. So, um, so Kilroy is a fabulous uh, way to, to monitor what's going on because so often we just have to get out and start learning what's the baselines and what's, you know, what's happening in these systems. And so we're trying to get more Kilroy's out in the Indian River Lagoon. We're actually trying to raise funding for it because... Um, our original plan once developing this technology was that we thought we would be funded by state and uh, federally mandated water quality monitoring programs, but those have all been cut back to the point where they're, they're, they don't exist anymore. 
And I, I think that that's something that people need to be aware of is that there isn't uh, any monitoring going on right now, of, of not, not anywhere near what we've had in the past. And so what's going to happen is we're going to see uh, increasing degradation of the lagoon, but over a very slow period of time. And the damage is starting to be done now, but, you know, we won't see the impact for a few years. And so the politicians can claim that they've saved money by cutting these programs, um, but we're not going to feel the impact for it for a few years to come. Yes, it's a real problem, and there have been significant cuts in all aspects of oceanography from uh, locals measuring uh, lagoons like Dr. Witter's talking about to the work of the National Marine Sanctuaries. And uh, a number of these programs were rescued by uh, a last-minute bill by uh, Congressman Sam Farr that was put into a, a bigger omnibus-type bill. And fortunately, the uh, Republican from Virginia, who was chairing the committee, saw the importance of that and put the, put the uh, funding restoration stuff back into the bill and let it be passed through. Still, we're seeing a lot of reductions, and there just needs to be much public outcry to, their, to our decision makers and policymakers that uh, you know we need to, we need to fund uh, monitoring, and a lot of monitoring can be done by um, through citizen science and active scientists. I mean, active citizenry. Uh, could there be a, adopt a Kilroy program? Absolutely, we would love to to um, get people working together to help adopt Kilroy and, and uh, you know, part of our, our Team Orca um, organization uh, does involve people helping to maintain the Kilroy's force. Yeah, it, it takes a village to run a Kilroy. Yes, <laughs> and to, and to um, keep the Indian River Lagoon healthy. So um, we're out of time, but uh, Dr. Edie Witt, uh, Witter, I really want to thank you for taking the time to explain to us the mysteries of bioluminescent and mesopelagic critters and and then bring it ashore up onto the coastline with uh, Indian River Lagoon and looking at the sediments, how they bioluminesce like canaries um, to um, indicate uh, stressors and pollution. Uh, it's just been a fabulous time talking with you. Well, thank you, Rob, and I really appreciate what you're doing to try to raise awareness and... and um and protect this, um, these ecosystems that we all care about so much. Yes, if you want to take action to help convince other county commissioners to enact responsible lawn care practices around Indian River Lagoon or elsewhere, please visit oceanriver.org, and you can learn more about it there. And, Edie, where do people go to learn more about Orca and Kilroy and bioluminescence? Go to Team Orca. T-E-A-M-O-R-C-A dot O-R-G. And uh, um, it'd be wonderful if you would join Team Orca and, and uh, work with us to help clean up the lagoon. And you can write to Edie Witter right there at that website, Team Orca, as well. That's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thank you for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Rock, rock, rock.